There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the 1st of November 1936 and at the Man of War Steps at Sydney's Benelong Point, an excited crowd of family, friends, newspaper men, well-wishers and curious members of the public have gathered to hail the brave seafarers. This is the spot where Brian Abbott and Leslie Hay Simpson were supposed to arrive from Lord Howe Island in their 16-foot skiff Mystery Star two weeks ago. They're now a fortnight overdue, and only their nearest and dearest hold any hope they're somehow still alive, either adrift on the Tasman Sea or washed up on the Australian coast. Everyone else presumes they're dead. And this includes Gower Wilson, renowned Lord Howe Island guest host operator and lifelong man of the sea. But Mystery Star's sad fate isn't going to stop him from making his latest voyage to Lord Howe in Viking. This brand new motor launch is sturdily built with planking an inch thick and it's been designed for deep sea fishing charters. 32 feet long with a 9.5 foot beam and a 3.5 foot draft, Viking has a 30 horsepower engine capable of 10 knots an hour and the craft also carries sail. The cabin sleep 6 has a receiving radio, a complete complement of navigational instruments and its compartments are stocked with enough food, fresh water and fuel for at least 10 days. With fair weather predicted, Gower expects the voids to take one-third of that time, and he hopes to reach Lord Howe Island on Wednesday afternoon or evening. If Vikings should meet with serious wind and wave, he'll hove to with a sea anchor. And should things get really tough, Gower has two oil bags that he can deploy. When pricked, these slowly leak to create a slick that will prevent big seas from breaking over Viking. Over the past couple of days, the men of Viking have posed for photos with the ship and reporters have asked if they have any apprehension about making this journey so soon after the loss of Mystery Star. 
Gower Wilson, who in June turned 50, has no qualms at all. Viking is literally twice the boat Mystery Star was, has three times the crew, and an engine 12 times more powerful. Further, Gower has already made the trip between Lord Howe Island and Sydney five times in small craft. Gower's 23-year-old son Jack Wilson is making the trip too, and he shares his father's confidence, saying Viking is simply far larger, more powerful, and more seaworthy than Brian Abbott's tiny vessel had been. In addition to Gower and Jack's experience, the four other men of Viking are competent crew, and at least two of them are highly experienced at sea. Viking will be in good hands if it runs into any bother. This is a stark contrast to Mystery Star. When it hit trouble, Brian Abbott could only look to the inexperienced Leslie Hay Simpson. This might have been what sealed their fate, but who really knows? A few minutes after 4pm, Viking sets off from the Man of War steps, and Gower steers the new launch up the harbour on its maiden voyage. Just over an hour later, after passing through Sydney Heads, Viking is severely tossed around by rough seas. But the boat comes through splendidly, and when last seen from South Head Lookout, Viking is making good progress north northeast through the Tasman Sea. As well as being a renowned guest host operator and man of the sea, Gower Wilson is one of Lord Howe Island's Band of Nine. That is, the nine men who fought in the Great War, two of whom didn't return. Gower is a proud digger, and he's president of Lord Howe Island's sub-branch of the Return Services League. As such, Viking is carrying some precious cargo. Poppies, to be sold on the island on Armistice Day for the annual Poppy Day Appeal, which raises money for impoverished and injured return diggers. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part six of the eight-part Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. I'm releasing instalments weekly, but if you're a supporter of the show, you can hear the whole story now. To support Forgotten Australia, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia or click the link in your show notes. Supporters also get access to a lot of bonus episodes, including two that came out of research I did for this episode. One's about a horrific 1909 shipwreck north of Lord Howe Island, and the other is about an unsolved murder from 1927, featuring one of the men you're going to hear about in this instalment. Gower and Jack Wilson had four companions on Viking. There was 30-year-old William Leslie Hart, who Ancestry.com.au records show emigrated from England in 1924. William had married a woman named Amelia Tallarico in 1929. A later newspaper report would say that her mother was on Lord Howe Island in 1936, which may have been why Leslie, whose occupation had been saw sharpener before he became a nurseryman, signed on as Viking's engineer. Viking's cook was known in the press only as Mr Murray. He could have been anyone, though given the position he signed on for, it's likely he didn't have that much seafaring experience. That brings us to the man identified in the newspapers only as H. Higgs, Navigator. I had better luck uncovering his identity. One article in the newspapers referred to his father as being A.A. Higgs, which was enough of a clue to use Trove and Ancestry to bring H. Higgs, that is, Hubert William Higgs, into the picture. And what a picture it is. I'm going to tell his story and that of some of his siblings in this month's bonus episode called Revolvers and Razors. For now, what we need to know is this. Hubert was born in Sydney in 1892. His father Arthur was a well-known and well-heeled bootmaker. 
Arthur and his wife Margaret were to have 11 children, eight of them sons. Hubert signed up to fight in the Great War in August 1915, and in a coincidence with Brian Abbott, he listed his occupation as actor. Hubert served with bravery and distinction as a signaller on the Western Front. Like Brian, he fancied himself a writer, and Hubert's vivid letters from the trenches, which you'll hear in detail in the bonus episode, were published in newspapers all over Australia. After he got back from the war in Sydney in the 1920s, Hubert married, had a couple of children, and became a picture show proprietor at the height of the silent film era. Then, in October 1927, Hubert and two of his brothers, Bruce and William, were charged with the cold-blooded shooting murder of a grazier in the Blue Mountains. William was to stand trial for the actual killing, and Hubert and Bruce were tried as accomplices. Bruce would soon be notorious as part of Kate Lee's Razor Gang. Hubert didn't distinguish himself either as a model citizen in the next few years. He'd make the papers for allegedly assaulting his wife and selling his failing movie business under false financial representations. After being declared bankrupt, Hubert did what any son of privilege might. He took off for Tasmania and bought a 30-foot motor yacht called Almira. Hubert and a mate tried to sail this from Hobart to Sydney. They got across Bass Strait, but their engine was knocked out of action off Gabo Island near the New South Wales-Victorian border. They left Eden on the 21st of April and then got caught in a gale. Hubert told the Melbourne Herald, quote, We were being rapidly driven to sea, so on the Thursday we rigged a sea anchor. Tremendous seas were running and our yacht almost capsized. We remained hove to until early on Friday, when we began to know what trouble at sea really was. On Friday morning, our mizzen sail blew away and the rudder chain snapped. We were in a bigger sea than we expect to ever see again. It was Black Friday to us. Our sea anchor carried away and we drifted helplessly. We used oil on the water and this may have saved us. But Almira was driven helplessly north and was only saved on the mid-north coast when they were rescued by a fishing trawler and towed into Foster. Hubert Higgs had benefited from the element of luck. Hubert and Gower Wilson both had digger pasts and their seafaring adventures in common. It's possible they'd known each other in England in 1918, where Hubert had seen out the war as an instructor. But it had seemed certain they knew each other later on Lord Howe Island. A January 1932 Marinda passenger list has a Mr H Higgs. This H Higgs, like Brian, elected to return to Sydney on a small craft, the 10-ton cutter Rondon. The voyage was untroubled, the Sun in March reporting, quote, The sea was so calm on the way back that members of the party had swimming races around the boat. But was it possible that Gower Wilson and the others aboard Viking didn't know about Hubert's murder charge and trial for being an accessory? Gower and Jack had been on Lord Howe in 1927, but if they'd picked up any paper from the last three months of the year, the story would have been hard to miss because it was everywhere. The engineer William Hart was living in Sydney. We don't know if he kept up with the news. As for the cook, Mr Murray, we don't know anything about him. But the sixth man of Viking, he had to know. William Hamill was to be Viking's assistant navigator. Born in 1889 on Lord Howe Island, he was Gower's cousin, another grandson of island pioneer Nathan Chase Thompson. They were close and grew up together. But William left the island in 1911 to live in Sydney. 
He'd only returned to Lord Howe for the first time in 1932. Now, he was going back again in the company of his cousin under their own power, which had to feel like old times exploring the islanders' boys. What had called William away to the mainland? The desire to join the New South Wales Police Force, and William had served ever since, attaining the rank of sergeant. He'd spent much of his career with the water police before recently transferring to Chatswood Station. As we've heard, the unlikely plot of Mystery Island had a ship's handful of passengers just happening to include a detective and a murderer. Given Gower had been close to the Mystery Island crew during the month of production, he surely knew the film's fanciful premise, probably even watching many of the scenes being filmed. Now, here he was on Viking, his small crew comprising a veteran police sergeant and a man once charged with murder. Sailors have all sorts of superstitions. I'm not sure whether life imitating art to such an extent is one of them, and we can't know whether this coincidence actually occurred to Gower. Just after Viking left Sydney, the men of Mystery Star were once again in the papers. On the afternoon of Saturday the 31st of October, a man named Daniel Smith and his adult son Ernest had arrived on horseback at Mooney Beach, about eight miles north of Coffs Harbour. They were looking for worms for bait when, as Daniel would tell police, quote, About 300 yards or more from the shore, I saw a piece of timber, like a plank, about 25 or 30 feet long. On it, near one end, was what I thought was a man on his back and tied to the plank. About five feet from him was what I believed to be another man in the same sort of position. The plank appeared to be black. The heads were in plain sight. It was three-quarter tied at the time, and the plank and men were going out fast in a northeasterly direction. Ernest Smith corroborated his father's account, quote, All I wish to add is that the plank or timber appeared to be black, with white patches. One end, which kept coming out of the water, appeared to be black, and that mostly underwater looked white. It was a fair width and could have been the bottom of an overturned boat. Daniel said he didn't associate what he'd seen with Mystery Star because he was under the impression that Lord Howe Island was somewhere near England. Constable Marsh of Woolgoolga didn't get the message about the sighting until 11 that night. He interviewed the men on Sunday and found them to be chaps with little imaginative capacity, so he believed them. The constable spent the day scouring the local beaches, but it would be a few days before a large-scale search began. Hearing the report, marine engineers and shipping men said that the green and white of the Mystery Star would appear black and white at a distance. Of course, the report of a plank 25 to 30 feet long was almost double the length that Mystery Star had been. Still, it was definitely worth investigating. Police requested that Airlines of Australia pilots flying the new Stinson tri-motor aeroplanes on the Sydney to Brisbane service deviate out over the coast and keep an eye on the water. One of these pilots was young Beverly Shepherd, until recently the boyfriend of actress Mary Maguire, and he had no idea that in less than four months he'd be the subject of an even bigger search. If you're a supporter of the show, you can hear his story in chapters of Australia's Sweetheart, my audiobook biography of Mary Maguire. The captains of all ships were also asked to be particularly vigilant for the men on the wreckage, and police searched a 60-mile stretch of coast. In Sydney, on Wednesday the 4th of November, a reporter for The Sun broke this news to Brian Abbott's wife Grace at the Bondi flat she'd shared with her husband. The authorities apparently forgot to inform her. 
The sighting of what might have been bodies was hugely upsetting. Grace said, quote, I am terribly anxious. If only that raft or upturned boat could have been brought ashore. She said she'd do everything in her power to organise a new search and that she hadn't yet given up hope that her husband and Leslie Hay Simpson might be found alive. Mike, the cattle dog, who'd starred with his master in Orphan of the Wilderness, hadn't given up hope either. A neighbour told the Sun reporter, quote, Every time the doorbell has rung at the flat since Mr Abbott left, Mike has rushed in from the yard with an expectant yelp, only to stop still when he has discovered that it is not his master. Around the time that Grace was talking to the Sun on the north coast, a fisherman was showing searching police what he'd found washed up on a beach about six miles from where Daniel and Ernest had made their sighting. This man had found seven glass floats in two sections joined by 15 feet of tangled rope. They'd been in the water some time, having broken free from some distant trawler. At a range of 300 or more yards, could Daniel and Ernest have mistaken the floats for heads and the rope for hair? Police thought so, and they arranged to show the glass floats and rope to the father and son in the hope it'd settle the matter. There'd be no further newspaper reports that I've found about the outcome of this test. Perhaps Daniel and Ernest admitted that yes, that's what they'd seen. But floats in a rope really didn't seem to match their original description. Since Mystery Star had gone missing, newspapers had limited themselves to quoting other people saying that Brian and Leslie had been foolhardy. But on the 5th of November, Maitland Mercury published an editorial criticising them for indulging in a publicity stunt that had gone wrong and resulted in a search that had then endangered many more lives. Such voyages, the Maitland Mercury said, should not be allowed to continue unchecked. And this extended to their successor, Gower Wilson. Quote, Almost on the heels of what was obviously another ocean tragedy, the more unfortunate because it was utterly unnecessary, came the news that another party had set out, this time from the Australian end, over the same route in a small craft which was said to be stoutly constructed and capable of weathering any storms likely to be encountered. It will be recalled that during the search for the missing movie men, ocean-going liners came to harbour in a badly battered state, their captains reporting that gales and high seas had been encountered in which it was impossible for any small craft to survive. It would therefore seem that this second expedition is every bit as foolhardy as the first and fraught with just as much needless risk to the six men involved. It is beside the point whether or not the present venture is a success. What really matters is that official action should be taken to prevent such stunts in the future. They can serve no useful purpose and tragedy stalks in the wake of all who would so openly tempt Providence. As with a few other newspaper reports we've heard in this episode, the wording and timing of the Maitland Mercury piece was eerily prescient. It hadn't yet been reported, but on Lord Howe Island, the families and friends of those aboard Viking were starting to worry. That was because they were now overdue by a day. The Sun newspaper ran this news the next day, but invoked those familiar words, quote, There is no anxiety for the craft's safety. The Australian Oriental liner Changti, bound for Melbourne, arrived off Lord Howe Island to pick up passengers on Friday the 6th of November. But the skipper reported they hadn't seen Viking. Changti left for Melbourne that night from the island, its officers and crew keeping an eye out. 
a Sun article included this update but again said it wasn't too much of a worry. Quote, to those who have experience of such voyages, however, this does not give cause for the slightest alarm. A small craft, they say, cannot run on a line at timetable. Mr. Wilson did not enter lightheartedly into the expedition. The article listed his experience, supplies and precautions, including those oil bags for the rough weather that had been reported on the Monday and Tuesday after Viking left Sydney. When Gower and crew hadn't reached Lord Howe Island by the third night after they'd been due, the Sun reported that, quote, a certain amount of nervousness has been shown by his friends because of how much it sounded like an echo of Mystery Star, right down to initial newspaper reports saying that no anxiety needed to be felt. Even in reassurances about Viking superiority, it was noted that its 3 foot 6 inch draft meant the sails wouldn't be of any use in a heavy headwind. It was speculated that Gower had hit bad weather and done what he'd planned, remained hove to with a sea anchor using oil bags if necessary. On Sunday, the 8th of November, with Gower and crew now four days overdue, a wireless message came to Sydney from Lord Howe Island. Quote, No sign of the Viking. Visibility is bad and the island would only be sighted probably at a distance of five miles. Relations are palpably anxious. The sea is moderate with a northwest wind and hazy atmosphere. Mary Hamill, wife of Gower's cousin William, Viking's assistant navigator, told a reporter, I'm not worrying, but I'll be very glad when I hear that they are there. Changti arrived in Melbourne without having seen Viking. A new theory was put forward by a yachtsman and by a former P&O first officer. They both believed Viking's engine had failed and, unable to make headway to Lord Howe against an adverse northeasterly wind, Gower had sailed for the mainland. The freighter Port Adelaide reached Sydney from Brisbane, having come along the coast and its captain had seen no sign of the missing craft. Edward Harkness, 2IC to New South Wales' Chief Secretary and Chairman of the Lord Howe Island Board of Control, told the papers that two days before Viking left, he'd gone on a trial run with Gower. Mr Harkness had been satisfied that the vessel was seaworthy and in the charge of a competent crew. A Sydney motor yachtsman put a dark theory forward to the Sydney Morning Herald. He thought that leaking petrol fumes had exploded. Quote, if this happened, there would be very little chance of saving the craft with so much petrol on board. But Norman Wallace didn't believe this. Then 36, Norman was one of Gower's good friends and the owner of the 50-foot schooner Wanderer, in which he'd made several trips to the island, starting back in 1928. Norman believed Viking had overshot the island. Quote, it is almost impossible to get accurate navigation in a small boat. Chronometers do not function properly and one is always liable to go wrong on longitude. If they have lost their way, it might take two or three days to recover their position. Norman Wallace said that his last trip to Lord Howe Island from Sydney had taken nine days. He'd been hove to for five of those in bad weather and had been driven farther south than Jarvis Bay before battling his way northeast to Lord Howe. The man who'd built Viking, W.J. Goddard, much like Graham Chapman had been when asked about Mystery Star, was optimistic when he was questioned by the Labor Daily. Of Viking and its men, he said, quote, There is no occasion to worry. I expect they will arrive in the morning. You must remember they have a fair distance to travel and have probably struck some heavy weather and had to take things quietly. The cruiser is a good boat, designed for the open seas, and they have plenty of provisions. 
I wouldn't be surprised to receive a radio message from Lord Howe Island tomorrow morning to say that they have arrived. No such message came on Monday the 9th of November. Lord Howe Island's Board of Control Chairman Edward Harkness now communicated with Deputy Director of Navigation Captain Norman Roscrooge, who, as he had one month earlier, issued a request for all shipping to keep an eye out for the missing vessel. On Tuesday, with Viking now about six days overdue, Mr Harkness, while stressing that the voyage was a private venture and not the responsibility of the Lord Howe Island Board, approached the New South Wales Premier Bertram Stevens to ask him to request federal search assistance from Prime Minister Joe Lyons. Minister of Defence Sir Archdale Parkhill acted faster this time. At 3am on Armistice Day, Vendetta left Sydney to search for Viking. Like Waterhen, Vendetta was a destroyer, 312 feet long, with about 120 men on board. Gower's friend Norman Wallace offered to take Wanderer and a volunteer crew to join the search. The Board of Control accepted the offer and Wanderer left that day around noon. The French steamer, Cap Tarifa, due to leave Sydney for Noumea at 1pm, was also going to divert its course to scour the waters near Lord Howe Island. Vikings builder Mr Goddard said Gower had enough petrol, including what was in the tank, for almost 100 hours of continuous engine use. But he'd now been at sea for 10 days, 240 hours. Even if they'd been hove to in heavy seas for some of the time, it was almost certain Viking was out of fuel by now. While those commercial passenger flights from Brisbane to Sydney were again keeping an eye on the coast, the RAAF's amphibian planes were not scrambled this time. Why? It's not clear. An aerial amphibian search was apparently suggested to the board by the state member whose electorate included Lord Howe. The Labor Daily was simply to report, quote, The board was unable to accept a suggestion that seaplanes be sent out to search for the vessel, as none of them has long enough flying range. Given Viking was following almost the exact same course as Mystery Star, and Mystery Star had eventually been the subject of a five-day aerial search, it's confusing that this was considered somehow different, particularly as there was a body of opinion saying that Gower would make for the mainland. In his role as unofficial chief of Lord Howe Island, Gower Wilson had long advocated not just for a hospital to be built, but also for a lighthouse. That suggestion hadn't been taken up either, so as soon as Viking was overdue, islanders kept the home fires burning. Each night, parties of four would take shifts atop Malabar Hill, whose 714-foot peak commanded 360-degree views of the sea. There, they watched for flares, and they fed a fire and flashed signals from a petrol lamp. In good weather, their lights would be visible for 50 miles out to sea. On Tuesday the 10th of November... There was good news, at least for friends and family, of Wally Pankhurst. After more than five months, Mystery Star's sister ship Pup had arrived at Thursday Island. Wally was sick and exhausted and in hospital, and he'd be bringing the 16-foot skiff back to Sydney on a steamer. But he'd made it alive. If the loved ones of those who'd been aboard Mystery Star and were now missing on Viking clocked this news, it surely just reinforced for them how capricious the sea could be in who it spared and who it took. 
Norman Wallace's Wanderer searched a wide area on Wednesday the 11th of November. So did the destroyer Vendetta, which reached 50 miles east of Lord Howe by Thursday afternoon and then turned around to steam back to Sydney. Vendetta didn't search north of the island to Middleton and Elizabeth Reefs, nor did it search the waters directly south of Lord Howe. On Friday the 13th of November, Amelia Hart, wife of Vikings navigator William, received a message from her mother on Lord Howe. It was about that ocean liner Changti and it said, quote, Two passengers told islanders that they definitely saw a small launch flashing two Morse lights as they passed and also saw a tramp steamer. This had been on Thursday the 5th, the night before Changti had arrived at Lord Howe. But Changti's captain insisted they had only passed a large cargo ship with which they'd exchanged signals. He said, quote, I do not think we would have missed the Viking if she had been anywhere near. I had a very good picture of Viking and its description, and all the men on the Changti Bridge had studied them. Except, of course, Viking hadn't been reported as overdue by the 5th of November. Vendetta returned to Sydney late Friday. No further search would be made by the Navy. But Norman Wallace kept searching in Wanderer. Captain Richard Perry at this point had Marinda standing off Lord Howe in a gale. His Tasman Sea expertise led him to believe Viking might be sheltering at either Middleton or Elizabeth Reefs. Captain Perry sent a message to Sydney urging that these reefs be searched. It had already occurred to Norman Wallace. He knew the reefs better than anyone, having taken Wanderer there earlier in 1936. It had been a hellish trip from Lord Howe Island through what he called, quote, the most extraordinary patch of bad weather. But Wanderer had made it, and Norman proclaimed the reefs as British territory. Middleton was covered at full tide with a sand atoll at one end. There was no vegetation or fresh water, but there was sufficient wood from shipwrecks for firewood and to build shelters, and there was also a hut in one of the old wrecks. To help future shipwreck survivors, Norman had left supplies, including signalling mirrors and fishing tackle. Gower Wilson had also been to the reefs, so Norman believed that his friend, upon realising he'd overshot Lord Howe and was low on petrol, would have made for Middleton. Norman Wallace had originally intended to search the reefs, but as Wanderer would take too long to get there, he'd told Edward Harkness to request Vendetta search them instead. According to Mr Harkness, this request had been relayed to the Royal Australian Navy. Yet, the destroyer Vendetta hadn't gone any further north than 50 miles due east of the island. When Mr Harkness realised this, he broadcast a radio message to Norman Wallace asking Wanderer to search the reefs. But Norman Wallace's radio was plagued by static the further he got from Sydney. And in any event, Wanderer was now being severely battered by the ocean and was itself in grave danger. When it was realised Vendetta had simply kept to 30 miles north of Viking's projected route and had not searched the reefs or the waters south of Lord Howe, the Islanders and Gower's other friends in Sydney were bitterly disappointed. Mr A.E. Crisp, who was Gower's Sydney business agent for Ocean View Guesthouse, expressed his frustration to Melbourne's Herald on the 20th of November. They paraphrased him, quote, it had been pointed out by some, said Mr Crisp, that when Mr Charles Ulm was lost, the American Navy carried out a most elaborate search for the plane. On board the Viking were six Australians, but the naval search has been only a superficial one. Mr Crisp said there was still hope. He'd personally checked Viking's provisions and said that, carefully rationed, 
their tinned food and 90 gallons of fresh water could last them a month. Maitland Mercury reported that on Friday the 20th, the father of the Navigator, that'd be Hubert's father, A.A. Higgs, said he didn't think it had been a fair search. Amelia Hart, wife of Vikings engineer William, asked, could not something else be done? Quote, could not an aeroplane carrier be sent, complete with planes? By now, Marinda had arrived back in Sydney. No one had seen any sign of Viking. Captain Perry said if Viking was using a sail, he would have seen it at a range of about five miles. He reiterated his belief the launch might have reached the reefs. Marinda brought numerous letters from islanders saying they were unhappy the search had been so short and so limited in scope. But a picture was worth a thousand words, and on the 20th of November, the Daily Telegraph had the most poignant image from Lord Howe's recent tragedies. It showed Gower Wilson's daughter, Veronica, then aged 25, and his son Roy, 11, along with Gower's niece, Monica Ostick, standing by a tree on Malabar and staring out to sea. The headline, Watching for Viking. They'd maintained this vigil for weeks already, and they wouldn't be giving up anytime soon. But hope would die hardest for little Roy. The next day, the Sydney Morning Herald ran an article by a writer identified only as RJ. It was titled, Gower Wilson, an Appreciation. It began, quote, Born under the shadow of Mount Gower, after which he was named, and inheriting much of its ruggedness and strength, was Gower Wilson of Lord Howe Island and skipper of the missing cruiser Viking. Soldier in the Great War, sea rover, man of indomitable will and matchless integrity, yet withal so kindly, gentle and courteous, one always found him there ready, quietly, unobtrusive, to lend aid or protect the weak and defenceless. It went on. An excellent sailor, he inspired confidence in all around him. I, myself, though naturally extremely timorous, would land on a slippery rock from an open boat, with fathomless depths beneath me, without a pang of fear, if I knew his strong hand was there to grasp mine and lift me safely across the breach. It is difficult for those who knew him to imagine any set of circumstances over which he could not triumph. Yet, the use of the past tense made it clear the writer knew that Gower would not triumph this time. In the week that followed, two other letters would appear. One in Smith's Weekly was written by my great-uncle Harold Ingram Nichols. The letter described how he and Gower had been proud members of the Band of Nine. Quote, All his pals of the 5th Division Engineers, AIF, will join in hoping that he and his party will eventually reach the island safely. If it should be otherwise, and if he has sailed out into that vast Valhalla where other diggers like Smithy, Olm, and countless others have gone, sincerest sympathy will go to his anxious and waiting family. The other letter in the Sydney Morning Herald was from W.J. Dignam, whose brother Arthur hadn't returned from the war. He lauded Gower's hospitality and charm and recalled a Sydney function a few years back when he'd been celebrated by dozens of city men he'd befriended on Lord Howe Island. Quote, Truly, it was a reverence born of affection that bestowed on him the title of Uncrowned King of Lord Howe. As supporters will hear in this month's bonus episode, the Higgs family stuck together through rain, hail, shine and murder trial. Now William, Hubert's brother and his previous co-accused, said he was going to take a 30-foot yacht to search Middleton and Elizabeth Reefs. He told reporters, quote, 
If we get favourable sailing conditions, we should reach Lord Howe Island in five days. If not, we shall probably be away about six weeks. William Higgs admitted that Viking might have been swamped, but he too held out hope. Quote, I still believe, however, that my brother, who was navigator, kept well to the north and is sheltering near the reefs. As it turned out, and this might have prevented William Higgs from sailing into oblivion, the French steamer Neo Hebrideus had left Sydney on Friday for Noumea. Its owner had agreed to it diverting 100 miles from its course to search the reefs. Back in Sydney, Edith Wallace was starting to worry about her son and his crew on Wanderer. They'd been out now in terrible conditions for nearly two weeks. On Wednesday, the 25th of November, after 14 days at sea, Wanderer was sighted 25 miles off the shore from Palm Beach. The boat had lost its rudder and was running on an auxiliary engine. Signalled by a steamer, Norman Wallace replied that he didn't need any help. Hearing her son was almost safe, Edith Wallace told the son, quote, That is wonderful news. I've been worrying a lot. Everyone told me that my son was safe, but I could not help thinking night and day of the dangers he was encountering. That was good news. Then came the bad. A radio message from the owner of the Neo Hebridaeus said that the ship had visited Middleton and Elizabeth Reefs yesterday and had seen no sign of life or new wreckage. Wanderer limped towards Sydney Harbour. When a Sydney Morning Herald reporter reached it eight miles off the heads, quote, the Wanderer presented a rather battered appearance. The heavy gales encountered had knocked her about to some extent. The sails and rigging were torn in places, and the roughly made sweep was sticking out from the stern. The members of the crew clustered on the deck were unshaven and had weather-beaten faces. They all looked very tired. Norman Wallace went below, clearly in no mood for a shouted interview with this reporter. When the intrepid Herald scribe yelled out to ask if they were short of food or water, a crew member said they were right for both, thanks, but, quote, we've run out of beer. Their trip had been a nightmare, with just two and a half days of fair weather in a fortnight. Nevertheless, Wanderer had covered 1,500 miles. Once the yacht was safely moored in Neutral Bay, Norman Wallace told the reporters the bad news, quote, we are deeply disappointed at our failure to reveal any trace of the missing Viking. The search was over. Viking was gone, just like Mystery Star. In 1873, the sea had taken eight souls aboard the Sylph. After 63 years without a similar mysterious disappearance, there had been two in the space of a month and another eight people had vanished from the face of the earth. No trace of either Mystery Star or Viking would ever be found. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Isn't that a joey down there? Wonder what he's doing out alone. Back on the 5th of November 1936, when Viking was still just one day overdue, 
Orphan of the Wilderness had its press preview and garnered some glowing reviews in the days following. The Sunday Sun said it was, quote, the best Australian picture yet made. This sort of hype wasn't unusual, but a talking picture with a young star who died before release was something new in Australian cinema. The Sun's writer remarked, quote, The ill-starred Brian Abbott's tragic disappearance at sea was a blow to all those who liked his cheerful personality and believed in his future as a natural, unaffected actor. Truth newspaper said the kangaroo Chut was a great performer and that the opening set in the bush was, quote, one of the loveliest sequences ever filmed. Yet it found, quote, the story is less satisfactory, nor are the actors as convincing. But Truth qualified this with, quote, Brian Abbott, straight and tall and likeable, makes an interesting debut. Orphan of the Wilderness had its public midnight premiere at the Lyceum just before Christmas, with proceeds from this Hollywood-style gala going to buy toys for kiddies in hospital. In March 1937, in the New South Wales Supreme Court, motions began to have those aboard Viking and Mystery Star presumed dead so that their estates could be administered. The first of these was brought by Mary Hamill, wife of William Hamill, Gower's cousin, who'd served as Viking's assistant navigator. An affidavit was read from John Capel of Elite Boatshed in Rushcutters Bay. In it, he claimed a Viking, quote, Though seaworthy, I would say that the boat was not suitable for making an ocean trip, such as from Sydney to Lord Howe. His statement said he'd warned against going on that Sunday, quote, The wind was coming freshly from the southwest when the Viking left, and I tried to dissuade Wilson from starting. That afternoon, the wind increased to gale force, and in my opinion, the Viking would not have been able to survive at sea in the weather then prevailing. If this statement was true and not 2020 hindsight, it meant that, just like Brian Abbott, who had ignored Gower, Gower had ignored a warning he didn't want to hear because he thought he knew better. Even more poignant, though, in this court hearing was the letter that William Hamill had written to his mother on Lord Howe after Brian and Leslie's disappearance as he was preparing to come visit her on Viking. Quote, That was a very foolish thing for those two men to leave Lord Howe Island in the skiff for the coast. I don't think they got 50 miles from the island. That same month, March 1937, Mystery Island, which had been picked up by Paramount, was released to little fanfare as a supporting feature to an American film called Valiant is the Word for Carry. Oh, by the way, Val, I came along to make a suggestion. Oh, you did? Uh-huh. Good one. Well, I think so. Let's hear it. Well, now, you said yesterday that we weren't very far from the regular shipping routes. Well, if that's so... Wouldn't it be a good idea for us to post a lookout on the hill at the end of the beach? We could take it in turns. And then at night we could build a fire for a night signal. Mystery Island newspaper ads showed Gene leaning back against Brian as he gazed out to sea. The tagline read, quote, Australia's first mystery romance produced against the luxurious exotic background of Lord Howe Island. A review in Sunday Sun said, quote, Careful attention to detail, good photography and a credible though slight mystery story are presented in the film with a well-chosen cast headed by Brian Abbott, the good-looking and competent young actor whose death was a genuine loss to the picture-making world of Australia. Having recently watched Mystery Island at the National Film and Sound Archive, I can say that this review was very generous. While the film's premise had promise, the dialogue was starchy and the delivery was often hesitant, with actors sometimes competing to be heard over wind and wave. 
Scenes were also disjointed, suggesting missing shots. My suspicion is that back in Sydney, in the editing room, they did the best they could with the takes they had, realising that conditions meant they had a lot of unusable material and lamenting that 2,000 feet of footage that had been lost to the sea. That said, the Lord Howe Island scenery was pretty and Brian Abbott was again a relaxed screen presence. As for that colour documentary that had been announced, it didn't materialise. After Brian Abbott, Leslie Hay Simpson, Gawa Wilson, Jack Wilson, William Hamill, Hubert Higgs, William Hart and the mysterious Mr Murray were declared legally dead, there was further drama in September 1937. As we heard, Brian had taken out a £1,000 life insurance policy before heading to Lord Howe Island. When his widow, Grace Rickard-Bell, tried to claim it, the company refused to pay. The grounds for this were that he hadn't told them his plans with a mystery star. The insurance company was represented by future state politician Clive Evatt, who, coincidentally, a decade earlier, had represented Hubert Higgs and his brothers on those murder charges. In the Mystery Star case, Mr Evatt argued, quote, The boat in which Abbott set out on the 400-mile journey to Sydney was a mere cockle shell. The Enterprise was an absolutely impossible one which could not have been attended by anything but almost certain failure. Contained in Mr Evatt's statement was a contradiction. Absolutely impossible versus almost certain failure. So which was it? Even high-flying legal eagle Clive Evatt knew he stood to lose. If it had been argued in court, Grace's legal team could have presented much of the evidence you've heard about Pup's seaworthiness and how Brian Abbott could have reasonably expected to make his voyage and arrive safely. The matter was settled out of court, with Grace's payment not made public. As we've heard, it's likely that Brian Abbott had paid close attention to Pup's adventures, and we know that Gower Wilson followed Brian's fate closely before he literally followed it to his death. And that makes it almost certain that young Sydney taxi driver George O'Brien followed all of these stories, and that he might have been one of the few people who actually rushed out to see Mystery Island. Why do I say this? Because George O'Brien decided he wanted to sail to Lord Howe Island. This fellow, in his mid-thirties, had no maritime experience and he didn't have enough money to buy a boat. But these were mere trifles. George decided that he'd learn what he needed to know about sailing and navigation from reading books and he'd build a yacht himself. Then George and his wife Doris and their two young sons would sail across the Tasman Sea to Lord Howe Island as the first stop in a voyage that was going to take them all the way to San Francisco. What could possibly go wrong? I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to the eight-part Forgotten Australia series The Mysteries of Mystery Island. Part 7 will be released next week. And believe me when I tell you, there's much more to the story. Forgotten Australia supporters don't have to wait and can hear part 7 and 8 right now. For information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia or click the link in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land that's traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.